me of a story I heard about a minister who was very popular because he was known to always preach 20-minute sermons. And it was because he had this wonderful cough drop that dissolved just in the nick of time. The day that he went on and on and on and on, somebody had given him a marble instead. <laughs> but I'm ready if you're ready. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Do you have stress in your life? Or better, I might ask, is there anyone here who does not have stress in your life? We would like to meet you. Um, a recent news analyst suggested that we're seeing a rise in school shootings because children are experiencing so much stress. And frankly, that made me laugh. Are we so naive that we think stress is a modern invention? And you think, think about some of the men and women in the Bible. Do you think Moses didn't have stress in his life? Or Abraham? Or the Apostle Paul? Or Peter? If all that was required to turn us into killers was stress, then children would have been regularly killing each other from the beginning of time. Well, I think in, in 1 Samuel, we're going to begin to see David under great stress. It's become clear to him at this point that Saul is determined to kill him. And of course, at the end of our last chapter, he had fled, first of all, to Samuel at Ramah. And Saul had pursued him. <coughs> and so now we're going to see David fleeing a whole lot more places as he begins a very difficult time of his life. I know you can't even begin to see the names of the places he fled here but maybe you can get the drift of it from watching all the arrows. Just in our chapter here, and it's really the beginning of this difficult time in his life, we see him going from Gibeah to Ramah to Nob to Gath. So again, about 30 miles right in through here. And that's the beginning. He's got a lot more traveling to do in our next lesson. And after that, as Saul pursues him and persistently tries to kill him. Very difficult time. Well, in chapter 20, verse 1, First of all, he goes to Jonathan in this very touching chapter about a very special friendship. David fl fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? Jonathan's response in verse 2 <coughs> was, You're mistaken, basically. Far, far from it. You shall not die. My father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this thing from me? Is it not so? Well, we can think of some good reasons why Saul hid it from Jonathan because he knew of the friendship between Jonathan and David. I think Jonathan found it hard to believe for two reasons. When we love people, we want to think the best of them. And often we're the last ones to know if they're on a, an evil path. And I think secondly, because Saul had given his word back in chapter 19, verse 6, he had sworn an oath by the Lord that he would not harm David. He said in 19.6, um, as the Lord lives, which is an oath, he shall not be put to death. Well, of course, we've seen Saul's word and we're going to see increasingly in, in coming chapters that his word means very little because he fluctuates back and forth. Uh, reminds you of the verse in James chapter 1, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways and that certainly describes Saul at this time in his life. Well, in verses 3 to 7 of this chapter, the plan to find out the truth becomes important. David insists in verse 3 that your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight and therefore he's not going to tell Jonathan. And Jonathan at that point seems enough convinced in verse 4 to say to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And so 
in verses 3 through 7, they have this plan to find out what the truth is going to be, that David will absent himself from Saul's table, where he would make a very quick and easy target for Saul, and see what his reaction is after a couple of days. How is he going to respond? And in verse 6, it says, If your father misses me, then say, David earnestly asks leave to run to Bethlehem, a city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. And it doesn't sound as if David actually did go to Bethlehem, so we're disappointed, as we will be many times, that um, David here and there is a little bit fast and loose with the truth. But before we're too harsh in judging him, consider the extreme stress, again, that he's under uh, at this time and the difficulty that he and Jonathan are both facing. In um, verse 8, right after they go through this little plan to find out the truth, uh, I think verse 8 is an important one. Notice a couple times in this section that David is very respectful to Jonathan, and, and that interests me. He calls, um, he refers to himself as your servant in verse 7. If he says, it is good, your servant shall be safe. And again in verse 8, deal kindly with your servant. Um, David recognizes his subordinate position to um, Jonathan, who is really the crown prince, as everyone understands at that point. Uh, but the other thing that is most significant about verse 8 is when he says, deal kindly with your servant. You miss something that you see here in the Hebrew or perhaps in some of your translations. That deal kindly um, or deal with me in kindness uh, is that very significant Hebrew word chesed, which we have looked at before. Let's look at that for a little moment and some of its significance. It's used two other times in this chapter, but you find that it is not always translated in the same way. So I'd like to talk about this just a little bit. Um, that word chesed, if you've been in Bible study for a couple of years, we've looked at it in other contexts. Um, it can be translated a lot of different ways. It's sometimes translated mercy or kindness, or uh, most commonly, in, if you're using the New American Standard, loving kindness is very commonly used, loyal love or loyalty or steadfast love. One of the most significant of the traits of God that is emphasized in the Old Testament, where this word is used more than about 250 times or so. When God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, or you may have in loving kindness in your translation. Just as in the New Testament, Jesus is said to be full of grace and truth. God is said to be abounding in loving kindness and truth. And just a couple, to give you a little flavor of the word, turn with me for a moment to Psalm 136, where you can see this trait is celebrated throughout this whole psalm. Psalm 136. And basically the theme of it is the Lord's chesed is everlasting. I think the King James uses the word mercy in this translation. Um, New American Standard uses loving kindness. But you notice it's a theme of every verse. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his chesed is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods and so on. And then it goes through all the wonderful things he does, how he made the heavens with skill in verse 5. He spread out the earth above the waters. It goes through creation. It goes through all the wonderful things he did for the people of Israel. And have you ever read this psalm and wondered at a few of the verses? Because when we think of loving kindness, 
this sticks in your throat a little bit. You get down, for example, to verse 15. He overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea for his loving kindness is everlasting. Excuse me? Pharaoh probably didn't think it was so great. Uh, and then down in verse 17, he smote great kings for his loving kindness is everlasting. He slew mighty kings for his loving kindness is everlasting. And part of it is in what this word chesed means. It has the idea of loyal love or a commitment to someone with whom you have a relationship. And because he had a relationship with Israel, not with Pharaoh and Egypt or with these kings who were slain, then it makes sense when you understand what this word chesed actually means. And we could um, even look while we're thinking about this back for a moment at Psalm 63, verse 3. We often sing the chorus that goes, Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Um, thus will I bless thee. I will lift up my hands unto the Lord. How many of you incidentally know that chorus? It's commonly sung. A number of you, a lot of you. Uh, and yet, notice the context of it here. You see at the top of Psalm 63, it's a psalm of Davis when David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, when he was chased, when he was hunted by Saul, when he was under stress. He could sing in verse 3, Thy loving kindness is better than life. Um, so he knew what this covenant loyalty meant. And let's go, go back to our incident then with Jonathan and David in our chapter 20 and think a little about it there. When he says, deal with me basically with chesed in verse 8. And then he uses the same word, uh, whether you see it as how it's translated in verse 14 and verse 15, where he says, if I'm still alive, will you not show me, and this is Jonathan speaking, the chesed of the Lord, that I may not die. And again in verse 15, and you shall not cut off your chesed from my house forever. This extends even to our families. So these men understood what that kind of loyalty in a relationship meant, this loyal love, this steadfast love. As we go down in, um, in 1 Samuel 20, look at verse 9 too. Um, David has already appealed to him for chesed. Deal with him with that. Um, for you have brought your servant into a covenant, verse 8, of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? If I'm really guilty, then kill me. And Jonathan said, far be it from you. Uh, and this verse 9 is an amazing one when you grasp it. Far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Consider the important decision here of Jonathan, an amazing decision, that when there's a conflict of loyalty, um, most people will tell you today, well, blood is thicker than water, or my family, right or wrong, uh, and this is a big step. Jonathan, it's not only his father he's talking about here, it's his king as well. And yet he is determined to do the right thing when he's forced in that choice. Shall I be um, with my father here and side with him as most people so often do? It raises a lot of questions, I think, um, all for all of us to answer. If it were our own family member and we knew they were doing wrong, would we side with God's truth or would we side with our family member? Jonathan here made a choice, I think, that was pleasing to the Lord and a very hard one for him to make. He decided blood was not thicker than water when if it were an issue of his father determining on a course that was decidedly evil. Well, then in verses 10 through 12, basically Jonathan said he says he's going to sound out his father about David and let him know. And uh, then we have another interesting thing in verse 13 to 15. 
uh, it becomes clear that Jonathan understands David is going to be the next king and not him, and he doesn't mind. Verse 13. Um, if, I, if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safe, safety. And notice the next phrase, may the Lord be with you as, as he has been with my father. The obvious implication is you're going to be king. God was with my father. He's not with him any longer. Um, and so... And then in verse 14, it's emphasized even more in verses 14 to 15. If I'm still alive, Jonathan says, will you not show me the chesed of the Lord that I may not die? Why would he think he would die? Because so typically when a new king came into, into office, he would kill off all the heirs so there could be no question about um, divided loyalties under the new king. And so Jonathan knew that typically happened and it could happen. But now he and David have an oath that will never happen if it depends on David. And so they make that covenant not only uh, affecting Jonathan but their future families in verse 15. You shall not cut off your chesed from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan knew he understood at this point that David was going to be the future king and he would not. And he loved David anyway and he was not greedy for power. What a wonderful man um, Jonathan was and how much we can learn about him and his lack of ambition and his desire to do right even at high cost uh, from this chapter. Then of course in, John, in uh, verse 17 here, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him and because he loved him as his own life. So there was a tremendous friendship here, a tremendous love between these two men and a tremendous loyalty. It reminded me of Proverbs 17, 17, which says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And that certainly described his relationship with Jonathan. Well, then, of course, in verses 18 through 24, they devise the plan Jonathan assumes he will be being watched by his father or by his father's spies and so they work out this little deal with the arrows if he shoots them one way all is well if he shoots them the other way David better run for his life because Saul indeed wants to kill him and then of course in verses 25 to 34 we have dinner at the palace a rather stressful dinner um, starting with verse 30 let's look at that well, actually a little even before that. Um, nothing is said, of course, at, at first when the king, verse 25, sat down to eat and David was gone. He didn't say anything about it. He assumed there was a legitimate reason. But then in verse 27, the next day, uh, the day of the new moon, David's place was empty and Saul said to Jonathan, and I wonder if there's a little attitude even in the way Saul refers to David at this point. Notice he doesn't call him by his name David. Jonathan does. But he just calls him the son of Jesse, the son of Jesse. And here he refers to him as the son of Jesse in verse 27 and again in verse 30. Um, where is he, in other words? And then in verse 28, Jonathan gives the excuse. David earnestly asks leave to go to Bethlehem, and he gives him the excuse. Verse 30, Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. If you have the living Bible, you ran into a very interesting way they translated that. Um, sort of like um, a modern expression that is often used that isn't very nice. And he says, Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Really um, 
an idiomatic expression here you see in verse 30, the shame of your mother's nakedness being the, uh, the shame of the mother who bore you is the idea of that. And an insult really on his wife, Ahinoam, if she is indeed a perverse and rebellious woman, then it sounds like um, she sides more with Jonathan than with her own husband Saul in his insanity and in his jealousy. And then notice in verse 31, it becomes very clear that not only Jonathan, but Saul himself knows David is the one chosen by God. David will be the next king. Because he says in verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And then he gives him a command, send and bring him to me that he must surely die. And we see the kind of conflict that people are often put into when you are under someone's authority and yet they ask you to do something that is flat out wrong. And notice he not only needs to be honoring his father, but he also needs to be obeying him because he's the king, and yet he does not do so. When you have two laws that are in conflict here, think about this principle all through this lesson. Jonathan disobeys and does the right thing and obviously does not reveal where David is so that his father can unjustly kill him. Well, Saul, of course, in verse 33, is furious, hurls the sp the, his spear at him to strike him down, um, Jonathan in verse 34 arose from the table and didn't even wait for dessert in fierce anger didn't eat his food on the second day for he was both angry of course at what his father had done and grieved over David because his father had dishonored him well of course then they carry out their little plan with the arrows in the morning in verses 35 to 40 and it becomes clear to David that he's going to have to run for his life indeed and um, Jonathan, after this little plot is carried out and he sends the armor bearer back home, they meet. And we see in verse 41, when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. Did that interest you? They have this intimate friendship and yet again he's showing subordination to Jonathan. Jonathan at this point looked legally to be the crown prince. And so I think it's interesting that he bows three times showing his subordination here and yet Jonathan kisses him showing equality that he doesn't expect that subordination from David and so they kiss and they weep and realize the implications of um, how will they ever meet again is unknown at this point. And in verse 42, da Jonathan said to David, go in safety or you may have in your translation go in peace because it is really the word shalom there. Um, and interesting, he thinks, with God's presence with David, that's possible, and it will happen, his safety and his peace. Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jehovah, saying, the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. And they rose and, of course, separated at that point. Well, as we move into chapter 21, the stress continues. Um, David fled to Nob at that point, and Nob is now where the tabernacle has been set up. The last time we heard very much about the tabernacle, it was at Shiloh, but that was before the Philistine attack, when apparently Shiloh was destroyed and the tabernacle moved to um, Nob. Although, remember the, the um, actual, what's the word I'm looking for? The ark in the inner part of the tabernacle was not there. It was still at Kiriath-Jerim. So if you're having trouble figuring where various things are, the ark is not with the tabernacle at this particular time. Well, Ahimelech is the priest at that point, and 
he's going to become a little important again in the next chapter, quite important. So let's look a little at the genealogy and why he's high priest at this time. Remember, if you were a high priest, you had to descend not only from Levi, picture him up there, but also from Aaron. And this shows the two major branches after Aaron had four sons. Two of them died early, leaving Eleazar and Ithamar. Eli was in the line of Ithamar. When you, I don't know if you can tell those are dotted lines, meaning that lots of people came in between, and these are dotted lines here and here and here and here. But um, Eli was in this line of Ithamar. You recall his evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and Ichabod, who was born um, somewhere around our first Samuel chapter 3. And here's the line that led to Ahimelech, who is now serving uh, as high priest in the tabernacle. And, of course, his other son, who becomes even much more important than Ahimelech, we will meet uh, in subsequent chapters. Just interestingly, remember the curse on Eli, and I'm sure you'll get more into that in the next lesson, but um, how this line was going to be affected entirely because of the sins of Eli from now on. And ultimately... This line through Abiathar would be replaced by Zadok, and God's promises would go to this line from thereafter to Zadok, um, all the way, incidentally, into the millennium, if you want to trace it through these references. It's the sons of Zadok who are going to be ministering in the millennium, according to Ezekiel 44, 48, and certain other passages there. So right now we have this Ahimelech, and a lot of us... Uh, aren't interested in genealogies, but somehow the more you get into some of the details of the Bible, they get really fascinating, and this is one genealogy that becomes quite important. Well, here we meet Ahimelech for the first time, who's the priest at Nob, and he comes out trembling to meet David in verse 1 and said, why are you alone and no one with you? We don't know for sure why he was trembling when he saw David, uh, except that maybe the, the breach between Saul and David had become very clear and something just didn't smell right about this situation. Now, why did David go there to begin with? And we get the impression that it was solely for um, food and a weapon at this point, but we don't learn until chapter 22, verse 10, that he came to inquire of the Lord, which I think is interesting. Doeg the Edomite is going to talk about that in the next lesson and also Ahimelech himself is going to defend it and say that many times he had inquired of the Lord for David, apparently consulting the ephod to do so, because David wanted direction from the Lord. He was that kind of a man, and God had given them one way to find direction through the ephod that was used. So he had come to ask direction, but also either he had arranged to meet certain companions there or they were already there when David arrived, perhaps in a separate area. But uh, he arrives alone, which is suspicious to begin with because here's Saul's armor bearer who comes with nothing. What's going on? So David says to Ahimelech in verse 2, the king has commissioned me on a matter and has said, let no one know anything and so on. He devises a rather thin excuse. Whether he lies to protect Ahimelech's life or his own or both, we don't know. But unfortunately, he does lie in these circumstances. But he's looking for help. Verse 3, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest said in verse 4, there's no ordinary bread on hand. And that tells us something right away. Why on earth in this community in which there were priests wasn't there any ordinary bread available? It suggests that the priests were in a bad way and that they were not being supported by the people. Because if they were being supported by the people, there should have been plenty of provisions. But remember, this was a very corrupt time and probably they weren't being well supported. And so the only thing he had on hand in verse 4 was the consecrated bread. 
Now you had a little chance to look into the consecrated bread, but remember one of the uh, items in the tabernacle was that what's called the table of showbread in the holy place. Um, every week they, the priests were in charge. I have this on backwards, I see. Every week the priests were in charge of baking new loaves of bread and putting them on there. And of course, I'm not going to look at all those passages of scripture, but there's information about both the table of showbread and the loaves and how they were made in Exodus 25, Exodus 40, and Leviticus 24. It was known as the bread of the presence, and it was full of significance, the showbread or bread of the face, bread of the presence, indicating a, a lot of very important things about Israel's relationship with God, which we can't go into right now. And there were 12 cakes baked each time. Incidentally, the very word for cake that is used in the Old Testament means that they were pierced or punctured, which is interesting. Um, and there were 12 of them, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And the other thing I found interesting, I like to get into some of this trivia now and then, but each loaf was baked with two-tenths of an ephah of flour. Maybe that doesn't mean a lot to you. How much is an ephah? Well, an ephah is almost a bushel. It's actually three pecks and three pints, or about 25 and a half quarts of flour. And so what I never realized is each of those 12 cakes was baked with 20 cups of flour. Big loaves. <laughs> probably no yeast in them, so they were probably flat, as you see it pictured here. Uh, and frankincense was added to each row, too. So there's a lot of things about the significance of that that we cannot go into. But that's what's um, offered to him at this particular time. Incidentally, those of you who bake bread like I do know that in a typical loaf we make, usually about three cups of flour go into it. So gives you a little perspective on the 20 cups. But he does offer this bread to David. And in verse 6, the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now, what about what he did here? Wasn't this technically illegal? Well, we need to look at Matthew chapter 12, and so if you will turn over there for a moment. What the Lord Jesus says about this incident casts a lot of light on it. Matthew chapter 12 and verses 1 through 7. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry, and they began to pick the heads of grain and eat them. But when the Pharisees saw that, they said to him, Behold, this is like, look, lo, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Why was that not lawful? Well, it was harvesting. It was considered work. When you harvested grain, that was work. You were supposed to not work on the Sabbath day. And so what does the Lord Jesus say to that in verse 3? He said to them, have you not read what David did? Because they were very loath to criticize anything David did. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat. And notice that phrase, which was not lawful. So the Lord Jesus isn't saying it was perfectly all right. It was, it was, it was what the law said you could do. No, Jesus knew the law. He said, David did what was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Notice the principle he's bringing across here, that when two laws conflict, what do you do? Um, and there were other illustrations you could think of. If um, 
Circumcision was to be done under the law on the eighth day. What if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Wasn't it work for a doctor to come and become involved in circumcising a baby? Yes, you have two laws that are conflicting in that situation, so what do you do? And he even accused the, um, the Pharisees in another case in, in the Gospel of Luke, if your son or an animal falls in the well on the Sabbath day, don't you haul him out? And of course they did. Was it work? Yeah, you might have to put ropes down there. You might have to dig. You might have to do a lot of things. But if it was your son or your valuable animal, wouldn't you pull it out on the Sabbath? And of course they would. So what do you do when two laws conflict? And that is, you do what's the compassionate thing here. What's the right thing to do? What your heart knows is the right thing to do. And so he goes on here in verse 6. But I say to you that some, something greater than the temple is here. And verse 7 in particular if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In other words, they were innocent for doing this because compassion is a higher law when there's a conflict between those two. So it's an interesting principle that the Lord establishes out of this. Basically, it was all right. He did violate the law, but there was a real important need for it, and the compassion that was exercised was more important on this occasion. Well, of course, going on in our um, chapter 21, unfortunately, in chapter 21, verse 7, we meet Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds, who's there and happens to see what took place, and we'll see what happens because he did see it uh, in the next chapter. David, while he's there in verse 8, speaks to Ahimelech also because he needs a weapon. Is there not a spear or a sword on hand? Uh, and the priest tells him, well, there's the sword of Goliath the Philistine in verse 9, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And so David took it, and he arose and fled and went to Gath. Interesting how the Lord used these unusual ways to provide both for his food and also for a weapon that he would need for his safety. He flees to Gath, which is an amazing choice, isn't it? Because didn't Goliath come from Gath? Why would he flee to the territory of his enemy? Probably thinking that um, Achish would be thrilled to have somebody defect who was such a known warrior at that time. Um, and so uh, that is not the response he actually gets. Um, as the people recognize him in verse 11 and say, is not this the one, um, is this not David the king? And interestingly, they have that a little mixed up um, they might have thought he'd become so famous that now he was the king, but not yet. But that was their impression. Um, isn't he the one that they sang and danced and said, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands? But David realizes he's not welcome there. He took these words to heart and feared Achish, feared that he could be locked up, that he could be considered a dangerous person, disguised his sanity before them, which is a great trick to do, incidentally, when you think your life is in danger. Uh, pretend you're a nut because nobody likes to deal with crazy people because they're unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to do next. And so um, Achish is disgusted at that point and you know, basically says, get rid of him. And David runs, as we'll see, um, still more. Well, let's look at some of the important lessons in this portion of Scripture. Very important lessons here in loyalty and what the meaning of real friendship is. Someone has said um, the strength of a country or a code 
lies in the true sense of loyalty it can arouse in the hearts of its people, which might explain why our country is in the shape it is today, because we see very little loyalty. Uh, in fact, when's the last time you heard anybody teaching on the subject of loyalty? Or um, there's just so little spoken about it today, and so little of it that we see in evidence in our current generation. We have, hey, I'm okay, and that's the only important thing. We see very little loyalty to family, to relatives, where, you know, I go back to my husband's father's generation where you always took care of your relatives, your cousins and so on, you kept in touch, where today there's little loyalty to either family or friends, husbands or wives or children. We, we hear the expression fair-weather friends a great deal. And so I think w we have the wonderful example of Jonathan and the right kind of loyalty, particularly in 1 Samuel 20, and ultimately David's loyalty. Lo David's loyalty to Jonathan and to his Jonathan's descendants. Uh, and David's loyalty also to Saul, to King Saul. Think about that as we come in coming lessons and see where he has opportunity even to do Saul harm and refuses to do that because he is his king and because God hasn't chosen fit, fit to remove him yet, that David will remain loyalty. Uh, he will not take that matter into his own hands, but he will leave it up to the Lord. But I think also uh, in that second lesson up here, limits to loyalty are important. We would not approve of someone who was loyalty to a corrupt person or to a, um, an evil cult or some organization. We would say that's a perversion of loyalty. And there are limits of loyalty and obedience, and we see that again in Jonathan, particularly in chapter 20, verse 31, where um, he's ordered by Saul, send and bring David to me, for he must surely die. And Jonathan does not comply uh, and makes that hard choice, even though Saul is his father and his king. And of course, that leads into this third principle here. When two laws clash, what do you do? And I think we see... The Lord's explanation of that casts a lot of light of that, on that in the Matthew 12 passage that we looked at. Um, uh, it is interesting to recall that the Lord says he ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat, and yet he declares him innocent. And in his summary, of course, his important summary in Matthew 12:7, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So I think that helps us sometimes when we're faced with hard choices. Things like um, submission areas where you need to be in submission to someone who is an authority over you, perhaps a wife to her husband. And yet when he says, sign here on this tax return, and he's confessed that even though he's cheated uh, and done a lot of things illegal, then you have these decisions that are difficult. Do you break the law, the law to our government, which you could put you in jail for doing that? You have a conflict between that and loyalty to your husband. And I think we know that the, the higher law is God's law, as he makes clear in many cases uh, elsewhere in Scripture. Number four, God's provision and encouragement to David, I think is great. We see that again in, in uh, chapter 21. He sustained him with bread, even this bread of the presence, which must have been very special indeed to David, and protected him with a sword. And in ending, I'd like us to look for a couple moments quickly at Psalm 34. What did David learn during this time? He tells us what he learned in Psalm 34, so let's look at it very briefly. It's a short psalm um, because we don't know what's going on in David's heart too much during chapter 21, but I think he spills his heart to us in, in verse um, Psalm 34. 
He begins, of course, praising the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually in my mouth. Um, so he's full of praise in these first verses here. Uh, in verses 4 through 7, he says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So he did pray. He prayed. And he tells us here, pray, and God will answer you. God will protect you. God will rescue you when you have a relationship with him, when you're in that covenant relationship with God. Um, he delivered me from all my fears, he says. This poor man cried, verse 6, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And then I love verse 7, when you are so frightened and you are in a stressful situation. He says, the angel of the Lord, maybe you can't see him, but he's there, encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. There's a healthy fear, and that's fear of the Lord. And when you have that, he'll deliver you from the other fears that plague you. Uh, then in just quickly in verses... Um, 9 and 10, yeah, he's talking about fearing the Lord and he'll provide for you. But in verses 12 to 14, let's jump down to that. He says, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Don't lie. I think David learned he didn't have to lie in that situation and he shouldn't have lied in that situation. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Lying is wrong. He knew that. In verses 17 to 18, he says, The righteous cry, the ones whom, with whom God has a relationship, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. And the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Wonderful, comforting words that God hears your cry. He's near to the brokenhearted. And then one other in verse 19. Don't forget verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He's saying in that verse, expect stress in your life. It's going to come. There are going to be many afflictions. It isn't the stress that matters, but remember his loving kindness under stress. He celebrates even in that Psalm 63, thy loving kindness is better than life. David wrote that in the deserts of Judah, fleeing from Saul, and could still say, thy loving kindness is better than life, even under stress. Wonderful example to us when we're under stress to turn to the Lord and receive that strength that only he can give. Uh, as much as friends minister to us and people like Jonathan, ultimately it's the Lord who's celebrated for us in Psalm 34. Let's close in prayer and then I'll take questions. Father, we thank you for the lessons that you have for us in these portions of scripture. We pray that your Holy Spirit will apply them to our heart. Help us to learn the lessons under stress that you want us to learn. We thank you for the lessons on loyalty and friendship and stress that we see in this lesson. We thank you in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Questions on this lesson? Anybody? It was a lot of material I know to cover. Yes? Uh, Jonathan's mother's name was Ahinoam. A-H-I-N-O-A-M. That Saul d refers to in such a disparaging way. Yes, his own wife. Okay, yes. Akish? Um, n other than whether it's a scribal error, I don't know. There's, there's no other cross-reference that deals with that that I'm familiar with. Yeah. 
probably a scribal error is what we're dealing there. I, unless he did it on two occasions, but if so, the scripture doesn't tell us. It's silent on that one. Any other questions? Okay, then you're dismissed.